Scripture reading will be from uh, Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. So if you have a Bible, uh, again, that's Mark chapter 4, 1 through 20. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered around him, so that he got into a boat and sat in, uh, sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and he sowed some seed fell, or, and he sowed some seed that fell among the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown, When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then while tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful but those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold, sixtyfold and a hundredfold the word of God Am I on, Don? Okay, great. So I'm a trivia guy, so let me, uh, let me ask you a question. The word parable, you know, a parable is a story that Jesus told. But you know what parable, the literal translation of parable is? It's interesting, uh, especially today, we're going to learn because this is the first parable that's taught. It's the Greek, comes two Greek words, para, which means alongside, like paraclete, the one who comes alongside, the Holy Spirit is sometimes called. And balo, which is the Greek word for to throw or to cast. So it means to cast something alongside is literally what a parable is. And basically when you see parables coming in in places like this, it's Jesus looking at the current situation and he's casting alongside a story that illustrates or illuminates something that's happening in there right now that he wants people to know. But... 
Parables have this special distinction because, as Jesus says clearly here, he says some people are going to get this and some people aren't. Some people are going to hear this and some people aren't. We all know there's times, there's hearing and then there's hearing, right? Any teacher knows when she speaks to the class and then half the class comes up after and said, did you say something about homework? You know, yes, did you not hear it? Well, they were in the room, and the actual acoustic waves hit their ears, but of course they didn't hear it, right? Every parent knows that. Sometimes kids know that. They'll say, but mom, dad, I asked you about that. The waves hit your ears, but of course there's no understanding, right? So Jesus says these parables distinguish for us between understanding and non-understanding. So... In order to get why he cast alongside this parable of the sower, we're going to back up. We're going to back up. If you have your Bible, I'm going to have you turn to the third chapter of Mark because what we get here, beginning at verse 7 to the end of the chapter, is a picture of the ministry life of Jesus and what was going on. And I don't know what you think of when Jesus was on earth, and sometimes you may think, I've thought this before, boy, wouldn't it be great to actually kind of be there at the time and see him and kind of hear what he actually sounded like and all that. But sometimes I think we can get a kind of rosy picture of what Jesus' ministry life was like. Um, You know, that somehow on the shore of Galilee, he was kind of, you know, there were some neat orderly crowds, people with roped lines like Disney-esque kind of, and, you know, they'd sort of step up to Jesus and someone would get in front of him and, you know, the the guards would be there to kind of keep people away and, you know, kind of, oh, and the crowds are parting as he walks through and people are hanging on his every word. Let's look actually at what the scripture teaches was Jesus' ministry life here. Because if you think you had challenges in your job, if I think I have problems, you know, weighted with ministry, you ain't seen nothing. So I'll break it down rather than reading uh, uh, 27 verses for you. Uh, I'll break down what what he has. In verse uh, 8, it says, uh, this is chapter 3, verse uh, 8, when Jesus' second part, when the great crowd heard all that he was doing. Remember, they heard. But listen to what they heard. They heard what he was doing. What was he doing? He was healing people. He was casting out demons. He was doing stuff. We all like to see that stuff, right? If you knew people were getting healed, demons getting cast out, I bet if you had somebody you loved that was sick, you'd take them too. I would, right? If, if that's what I'd heard. So when they heard what he was doing, they came to him. And Jesus told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, because they might crush him. It was an escape pod. Right? Yes, it says, have a boat ready because the crowd might crush him. For he healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. Now, I don't know about you, maybe that's your idea of something you'd love to have. But to have disease in, in our phobic, germ-phobic world, can you imagine standing there and everyone with diseases trying to crush you and press against you and touch you? I don't know if that's what you picture his ministry looking like, but this is what in the early days he was facing. So, hardly move and has to have an escape boat ready. Why are they hearing him at this point? Because they've heard what he's doing. Nothing about what he's teaching, nothing about who he is, nothing about this great doctrine. They just, they want him. There's a healing guy, and I got sick 
but I'm sick or I know somebody who's sick, okay? So it's number one. Number two thing of his ministry is that it's uh, verses 11 and 12. Uh, whenever the unclean spirits, because he's, he's helping people who have demonic activity, they fall down before him and cry out, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. So the only people that seem to understand who he really is at this point are the demons. And believe me, even though they were accurately he is the son of God, you don't want demons being your, for a variety of reasons, being your cheerleaders. Okay? You don't. Even if they're telling the truth. That's just not, you know, that's not really your ad, you don't want them in your ad department. Okay. Number three. We, we find out in starting in verse 13, he gathers all these uh, f- uh, people who are going to become his disciples and followers. They are inexperienced. They are often immature. One is traitorous. He's going to betray him. The brain trust here includes people who are going to deny him. People are going to doubt his honesty. People are going to betray him to the authorities. And some of his inner circle are going to try to find, use their newfound power to call down lightning to kill people in a town that won't receive him well enough. So this is who Jesus has to deal with as his new leaders. Number four, we find out in verse 21 what his kith and kin, his blood relatives, think of him. It says in verse beginning of verse 20, he goes home, the crowd gathers again, so that he couldn't even eat. He couldn't eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him because they said he's out of his mind. Guys, I don't know what you think. If I, like, if his brothers and his mom and his cousins are all sitting at his feet, drinking of his teaching, they're thinking, get crazy cousin Jesus out of here. He's embarrassing the family. He thinks he's whatever. Get the straitjacket. Literally, it means we think you're crazy. His family thinks he's crazy. All right? That's just the fourth ministry challenge. Fifth ministry challenge... Verse 22, the people who really knew the word, people who could understand the Old Testament and how it comes in, the religious establishment, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem, the head honchos say, he's possessed by the devil. By the prince of demons, he's casting out demons. So those who were in the know, biblically, or at least thought they were in the know, think he's a demoniac. You think you're having trouble at work. Things not to miss in this, I think we we have to know. First of all, the crowd wasn't hearing him, what he he came to say. What we've learned in verse 1 was that Jesus came, he said, to teach about the kingdom of God. He didn't come to do the healing and the casting out. That was so he could be heard. But sometimes we stop with what's done and we don't listen to what's being heard. Why is that important? Because you understand, you can be healed and go to hell. Right? You can be released from demonic activity, and you can be all well in this life and still miss the message of the cross, of what Jesus came to do. This was a way for him to be, get a hearing with them. Ultimately, what he teaches about the kingdom teaches them about the king and brings them about his identity. But this is 
we're not there yet. He's not there yet. Second thing we need to not miss about this is that he talks about the spiritual warfare aspect, verse 27 of chapter 3. He goes into uh, answering all these accusations about that he's filled with demons, and he says, look, if, if a house divided against itself, it won't stand. If Satan's risen up against himself and he's divided, he can't stand, but it's coming to an end. But I've got to enter the strong man's house, plunder his goods, for unless one first binds the strong man, then when he binds him, he must then plund- he can then plunder his house. So he says, look, we've got to take control of the situation here in terms of getting spiritually uh, a breaking of this bondage in order that I can be heard. The third thing that he describes, and I say this only because people, mis- I think, misunderstand this verse as best I can understand it. it. talks about the unforgivable sin. Y'all have heard this if you know Bible things at all. There's one sin that Jesus mentions is unforgivable, and it's the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Let's just, I just want to read that in verse 28, because in this context, people get sort of scared about this. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter... But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. He is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. So this is in response to the Pharisees who were saying, you're filled with demons. And Jesus says, look, you you say that, and it's an unforgivable sin. So have you ever had someone, if you've been around and and people think you know something about the Bible, I've had people say, and you may have people say, look, I've committed the unforgivable sin. I've blasphemed. I've spoken against God in a way. Um, If you care enough and you want to repent, I've never seen Jesus turn away someone with a repentant heart. And... I believe what, and this is again, I, I'm not telling you this is authoritative like there's nowhere else, but I'm, I'm saying what I, when I've read this and see this in the context and have read commentaries about it, I believe that what Jesus is really getting at is that he's the only way to forgiveness and that if you reject him and think that his message is from the devil, there is no forgiveness from anywhere else. So if you think forgiveness and the way to get right with God is going to come from anywhere other than Jesus Christ, there is, there's no forgiveness available. So if you, if you think and struggle with, um, sometimes people struggle with this. I've, I've committed this. I've said something's not of God that is. If your heart's being tender to turn to God, God is, his default position is to welcome those who repent. So enough about that. Finally, last thing I want you to notice in this before we discuss the, the sower and why he casts, puts alongside this parable is a verse that, again, can, be, can sort of be troubling on its face. His mothers and his brothers come. This is in verse 31 of chapter 3. And standing outside, remember, they want to seize him and put him in the straitjacket. They stand outside, and they call to him, and a crowd was sitting around, and they said, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. It may sound disrespectful to us. First, we have to remember why they were there, to seize him. But also, this at the heart of this is identity. For that culture in that time, the family, where you were from, and your family connections were your identity. 
you were son of John or son of Zebedee. You were from a certain town, Mary Magdala, from the town of Magdala. This identity was all about who you were. And so for them to say, look, your identity is here and they don't believe in you, I think what Jesus is really getting here is that there is an identity that supersedes every identity, and it is your place in the family of God. For some today, identity can still be found in family. I, I had a conversation very recently with someone who had come to Christ, and one of their family members was very upset because they left behind the tradition of their family, which was not Christianity. And this family, this, this person felt very betrayed that their family member had taken on the mantle of Jesus, of Christianity. For others, it may not be family per se, but maybe it is your ethnicity becomes your core identity. Uh, Where you're from, uh, the state or the the town, or maybe it's simply some skill you have. For for many in in our day and age, sexual things become your identity, and it becomes the core of of who you are. And Jesus says superseding everything, everything, every identity, is that you are Jesus Christ. You are his. Jesus says your identity is found in the kingdom of God and in the will of God, and every identity you have has to fall below that. So I don't think it's so much dismissing his family members as he's trying to put a priority scale here. Later on in Luke, he's going to say something that even sounds maybe even harsher to our ears, which unless you hate father and mother and brother and sister, you're not ready for the kingdom of God. I think it's the same idea. It's, he wants family members to be close. He wants us to be walking together. And you know what? This may be a comfort to you because it may be that you feel somewhat estranged from your family who feels like you're the, you're the freak. You're the religious person. And Jesus says, look, you have a family. If your family feels that way about you, it's not how I designed it. He designed families to walk together in his kingdom. But if your family somehow, you're outside of that, your family is your brothers and sisters here and all over the world who follow Jesus Christ. They're ultimately a family that lasts and matters. All that, as Jesus is addressing these problems, as Jesus is the chaos of ministry going on, he throws alongside a parable, a story. And in that context, a story that may be familiar to you about the sower. I'm not going to go back over it line by line. You probably are familiar with the story itself. This sower, he says, this farmer casts seed, and it falls onto different types of soil, uh, very hard, hard pan and uh, with places where birds can get it and the sun can scorch it and places where there are weeds and anybody who's tried to plant knows all these kind of things that you face and then fertile soil. So we know that and then the crowd walks away and the disciples are going to get the interpretation but the crowd is going to walk away talking about what it meant and Whatever. I, I want to just, I want to bring to you a couple of things. I want you to think about these things in relationship to this story. And as he's been talking about uh, in the context of all this ministry chaos that's going on around him. This was not the smartest farmer that I've ever seen in terms of where he chooses to cast seeds, frankly. Now, I've done enough gardening. I haven't been a farmer, but I've done enough gardening to know that 
You know, when I plant my, like, tomato or lettuce seeds, I know where not to plant them. Like, you know, if I throw them on the floor here or I go outside in the, you know, in the dirt out here and I just chuck them, I'm pretty sure they're not going to grow, right? So I make some evaluations on how to grow. So I have these little, I have these nice little raised bed gardens I did, and I still can't grow stuff very well, but I think I can. So I have these nice things, and I put really good dirt in them, and I make little furrows, you know, little bitty ones like, you know, the big farmer's wood, and I, I try to plant and space them. And you know how it says on the back, space them six inches apart, one inch deep. I, I never know exactly how to do that, but, you know, I, I'm, I'm giving it the best shot I can. Does this farmer do that? He's like a rotary spreader. He's taking seeds and just kind of running down the street, it seems like. Look at the places this farmer puts the seeds. It it fell along a path where the birds come. Who sows seed on a path? I mean, you know, I don't know how you're going to make money that way. Other fell on rocky ground. Like, are you going to hiking up in the mountains and throwing your seed on rocky ground? Are you really thinking it's going to grow? But this is what this farmer does. You throw, are you throwing it all in the weeds and the brambles and just kind of chuck? No, you don't do that, right? So the question I, I ask when I look at this is, why in the world doesn't he just sow it in the fertile soil to begin with? Why? Here's why, what I think. I'm just going to tell you. I, I don't, I'm not, again, I'm not claiming this is authoritative, but I think given what Jesus has just been doing, and he's throwing this alongside, to hear the religious leader saying he's a demoniac, saying he's, the family saying he's crazy, everybody saying whatever. You know where the Pharisees planted their seeds? With the very religious observant ones. They would never have dared to plant a seed with a prostitute. That's rocky soil. A leper. There was no, no way they were going to plant theirs. A sinner, a Gentile. They didn't plant seeds of the Word of God with Gentiles. They were unworthy. God throws and scatters His Word abroad to you and me. And I'm sure you're a lot nicer than I am, but I'm telling you, I, I got a lot of issues. And God in his mercy didn't see me as rocky soil. He saw me as one who was somehow going to be fertile and that that seed was going to take root in me. And I want to say to you, because we are, usually when we look at this, when I look at this parable, I think of I want to make sure my own heart is fertile soil, which is a good, I mean, it's a good thing to do. But you also are the ones that sow seed now. How does the Word of God, how does the truth of God get disseminated in our world? If you think they're coming here to church, I got news for you. At least in our country and in certain parts of the world, they aren't coming here. You are going out and you are a little rotary spreader. And I want to challenge you not to be one who only look for what you perceive as fertile soil. You may have encounters with people, your neighbors and your workmates or whatever, and I'm not saying to do it in an obnoxious way, but if, if you're a Christian, you are a rotary spreader of the seed of the Word of God in order to pray for and to, in, in a very winsome, natural way, be able to 
just bring the truth of God and bring light. Goodness knows we have enough darkness in this world that needs light. And I would just challenge you to spread it where you may think there's no way that this would be fertile soil, but I think like the Pharisees, sometimes I assume where the, the soil is fertile and where it's not. And I'm amazed sometimes when I look back and see what God has done with people who heard and maybe I never would have shared with. Last two things I want to say before we close about this. This parable tells me that in spite of what Jesus describes as satanic attack, the birds plucking it away, of shallow commitments, the sun that beats on this thin soil, and the distractions of life, which goodness knows we have a bazillion of, God's word won't return void. It will accomplish what it's set out to do if you will be fertile soil to receive it. The kingdom's work is a process. The seeds, I, I, I got news for you. If, you're, if you don't garden, if you just go to, the, uh, to Wegmans or whatever and buy your food, I got news for you. It doesn't happen overnight. As one who struggles to just get a few tomatoes out of my little pot, it takes time and effort and energy to see that seed turn into fruit. And the kingdom of God works little by little in your life if you will do the things that make for that word, that seed, to have fertile soil. What does it take? It takes the seed. If the word of God is not part of your life, there will not be seed to grow. If, this, if the, your heart is hard, you think you have all the answers, you don't need that stuff, you got it all figured out, I, I hope it works for you. I can just tell you, for me, what I've learned is that I thought I had it figured out, and I don't. The older I get, the truer the Bible gets. That's all I can tell you. Bearing fruit is an essential marker of the kingdom. It's the reality of a changed life that Jesus says is going to happen. As we close in a minute, I just want us to pray for a minute. and just I just want you to reflect for a minute on this, is that hard hearts equal closed ears. So if your ears are closed, Jesus says, let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit's saying. I say that sometimes because sometimes I feel like I, feel, I hear the Spirit speaking, but I don't know. It may just be me, but I feel, do you feel that sometimes you hear the Spirit speaking? But I don't know. I can't, I can't speak with his voice. I'm glad for those of you who think I do, but I don't. I'm a human voice. The Holy Spirit speaks to those with soft hearts and fertile soil. If you listen, he will speak to you. He wants to speak to you. It's not an audible voice. It's the fruit of God's word being planted in your heart and the Holy Spirit making it real to you and enlightening it. It's the most exciting thing in the world when you actually connect to something eternal and the word of God becomes this truth that changes your life. Hardened hearts, closed ears. Open ears, soft hearts. Changed lives means changed world. We're not going to change our world from the outside. It's going to start 
with hearts that are soft, that get melted by God's word, change families, change communities, changes nations. That's how it's going to happen. Let's let it start with us. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you that in the midst of an incredibly chaotic ministry environment that I think you often operated in, you were able to see the work of your Father. You were able to stay focused on what was important. Lord, teach us to do the same. Our chaos is no more than yours, Lord, probably much less, but yet I am so distracted and discouraged. Lord, you have really important things for us to do in loving each other and loving you. You've given us and entrusted us with your word to be people who both live out and say your word. Would you help us to be people who distribute your word widely and trust your word to do the work it was intended to do? Would you build your kingdom in our lives, Lord, in in this body, in this part of the world, Lord? Would you build your kingdom? Lord, we need you. Speak to us now, Lord. Just take a minute of, of silence, and would you just ask the Lord to just speak to your heart?